Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. My name is Eric. And I'm Lieutenant Levi. <laughs> All right, accents are done. Yep, I think that's it. <laughs> we sound like we're speaking Italian over here. Anyway, Levi, we watched Inglorious Bastards this week at 36 or less. Give me your review of Inglorious Bastards. This is a movie that tarantino spent 10 years writing and hot damn it is a movie that tarantino spent 10 years writing it is spectacular it's comic booky it's the the heroes are portrayed like villains and the villains are portrayed like the protagonist and damn i've been excited all week to talk about this one I'm excited man i watched this movie last night and um it reminded me of Back when this movie was released, when was this movie released? Was it 2010? Sounds right. Um, 2009. So back when this movie, 2009, when, back when this movie was released, uh, I watched all of the movies for Best Picture that year, and I wrote a Facebook list ranking the 10 movies that had been nominated for Best Picture. And uh, I ranked them, and I actually ranked Inglorious Bastards as the best movie of the year that year. And I ha- still have the list because it's on Facebook. So I'll just read my review from 2009 on this film. Let's hear it. <laughs> Here it is. I saw this film about halfway through seeing all the Best Picture nominees, and I keep coming back to it as my favorite. I love how language is used as a major plot device. I love how Tarantino's dialogue translates well to German, French, and Italian. I love how cinema itself is used as both a destructive and triumphant force in the film. The villain is wonderful. He's someone you're actually scared of. Uh, which really makes the climax satisfying and punchy. I think it's Tarantino's best movie because you really see maturity and progression from his earlier titles. Best movie on the list. Beautiful. And I believe that year the uh, the winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture was The Hurt Locker. Ooh, also really yeah, good. But I, but I think Inglorious Bastards won for Best Original Screenplay. In fact, I'm fairly certain that that is the case. Eric, I um, thought you didn't uh, pay attention to awards. Hey, this was 2009, man. <laughs> I just wanted to go back. Other things that were nominated that year, Avatar, Up in the Air, <laughs> District 9, nominated for Best Picture that, that year. That was a really good one. A Serious Man, An Education, Up, Precious, and The Blind Side. And th- that just happens to be also my ranking of those movies from that year. That was a really good year. It was a good year. It was a good year. And and looking at the list, I'm actually kind of appalled that I ranked Avatar number three. Yeah, that one, <laughs> I, re- I read something the other day, probably on Reddit, that pointed out that despite Avatar being the highest grossing film, it has yeah. it had zero cultural impact. Nobody quotes it. Mm-hmm. Few people can name any of the characters in the movie. People only saw it for the, for the 3D. For the three dizzle. Well, and it was technologically so advanced, and the budget. Yeah, and everybody yeah. just wanted to see what five hundred million dollars looks like. <laughs> it was a sin. What, what, what the fuck are we doing talking about Avatar? We got a move. We got Inglorious Bastards here. Why oh my god! About and we got to try and movie. shove it in an hour. Oh, I love shoving it in an hour. Let's start <laughs> off here. Uh, so one thing that I noticed, and I think we're gonna have to put this in the Tarantino toolbox chapters once again. Yeah, chapters. So chapters were used in Kill Bill. Chapters were used, I believe, 
I don't know if they were actually called chapters in Pulp Fiction. No, but they had remember. just the title card. Yeah, and they had title cards in um, in Reservoir Dogs as well, but those were more to introduce characters. But the I think we got to put this in the Tarantino toolbox is the chapters. My question, and, and it is interesting because he wrote both Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill at the same time, and both those movies implement chapters. So maybe this was just something that he was doing at that time. Uh, he did say that post Jackie Brown, um, Inglorious Bastards was actually the movie he wrote before he wrote Kill Bill. So why do you why do you think he uses these? Because I've been, you know, I've thought about it. I've seen it them pop up, and I've been like, oh yeah, title cards. He likes those. But in for whatever reason, in watching Inglorious Bastards, I kind of want to know why. And I'm curious if you have like any theories as to what, why he does it when so few others do. I don't know. I think he just does. I mean, this movie and both both this movie and Kill Bill, they implement chapters in a very effective way. If you look at Inglorious Bastards and you look at Kill Bill, they actually have very few scenes for a elongated, you know, motion picture experience. I mean, in Glorious Bastards, it clocks in at two and a half hours. It flies by. And I think it only has probably ten scenes in the entire movie. I mean, there's these long, long sequences. And um, and I don't know. I mean, he he kind of, I think that Tarantino writes films in very much the same way that people write novels and that he doesn't really give a shit about how long they are. He's never going to turn in a hundred page script. Um, and I think he just really draws on that novelistic perspective, maybe to help him organize the story. And, you know, when you write things in chapters, it's easy to move things around. If you want to do things nonlinearly, which he didn't really do in this movie, there was kind of one moment of nonlinear storytelling, but, um, but yeah, if you want to move stuff around, that's an effective device. But then also, uh, I think we're just getting a peek into his craft of how he likes to organize his stories. And and it works. That's the thing about it. It freaking works, man. Is it uh, partially to break the tension? Because this whole movie is super mm, tense. You think about mm-hmm. it, like, go through those 10 scenes or how many ever, you know, every one of them, like... The you know the opening yeah. with the family and they're speaking French and then they switch to English. I mean that whole time I'm just like gritting my teeth, yeah, waiting for. Especially I I remember this watching the movie in that first scene. The first time I saw this movie, I vividly recall waiting for his daughters to like kill the soldiers or waiting for just <laughs> the the bombast after Kill Bill. I just expected yeah. it to turn into a bloodbath at some point because right. it's a Nazi revenge movie. And so I expected it yeah. to right off the bat be a Nazi revenge, but movie. they just really dragged that scene out. And you're by the end of it, you're like, just fine. Tell him, tell him, just let it, <laughs> just get him out of your house. No, Jesus. It's amazing to me how Tarantino and obviously, you know, maybe not every viewer goes through this experience, but the way that he uses Christoph Waltz to really, just ring the ring the truth out of the guy <laughs> and literally to the point where he's crying it's almost like he's just a twisted towel until until the the honesty drips out of him and as a viewer you're like you're like i i completely understand why he betrayed this family but it's awful and you know war is hell um and 
but I, I mean, I, I can understand that it was basically, he was like, it's either me and, or me and my daughters or this family. And he made the call. I mean, not a call that anybody would want to make, but Tarantino takes you down that path. And it's just surprising, man. It, this movie represents a huge turn, I think, for Tarantino. Having watched all these movies in order, coming off of Kill Bill and coming off of Death Proof, going into Inglorious Bastards, like you said, Levi, I, I don't think that this is what you would expect from this film coming off the heels of those two movies, which pay homage to a lot of B movies. Like, this is an A fucking movie. <laughs> it's really good. And I think you're right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's mature. He's matured. You know, Kill Bill was mm-hmm. easy for him because, mm-hmm. you know, it's fireworks. And that worked. Yeah. This one, like, to take all of that tension, to take, you know, you talked about performances and how it takes an intimidating actor to really nail Tarantino's dialogue. Yeah. And you look at mm-hmm. Brad Pitt and Christoph Waltz, they just, you don't see much of Brad Pitt, but his performance in this is one of his best. Like he just, yeah. and it's weird <laughs> because you don't expect him to, I'm, you know, I'm surprised that he's in this movie for all uh, the other I'm... stuff he does. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised, but at the same time, Brad Pitt has been, he's kind of popped up in people's movies, in directors' movies, and I think that he really likes working with certain directors, and he wants to he wants to do a movie with all the cool guys. I mean, he's done a movie with Soderbergh, he did three movies with Soderbergh, the Ocean's Eleven trilogy, he did uh, a movie with Fincher, he did Fight Club, he did a movie with Guy Ritchie, because he just wanted to go be in Guy Ritchie's movie, and he was in Snatch. I feel like, you know... He's gonna he's gonna pay the bills with his films, but he also wants to work with really good directors throughout his career, um, and and I think he seeks certain directors out. And like you said, man, I think that Tarantino's got some cred to the point where you know you're gonna have some fun on the set. Um, you know he's gonna write you some super cool dialogue, and if you're an actor's actor, you want to get out there, you want to do a good job. And Brad Pitt does a great job. Uh, I do see Brad Pitt as a bit of a different actor, and I've gotten some flack on this. Like, I see him as a bit of a different actor than, say, a Tom Cruise. I think that Brad Pitt actually does really I mean, He does fucking good movies. Like, what's a bad Brad Pitt movie? Uh, I'm trying to think. It would have to be something when he was really young. Yeah. Because I remember I mean, growing sure up I mean, and Mr. being Smith's... like, he's a dork because he was in, yeah. <laughs> you know... More serious yeah. movies, and it was kind of just his pretty face. But then he hits, like, Fight Club, and he just, for whatever right. reason, he hits his stride. Well, he's a fucking movie star, man. Like, Brad Pitt, he, he goes on screen, and you have to just sit back and watch him. I mean, yeah, he was in, you know, he was in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which wasn't the greatest movie of all time. Uh, have you seen Killing Them Softly? Like, that's a great movie. No, and I remember seeing a, him in the trailer, oof. though, and thinking, well, it must be okay if he's in it. That'll put you on edge. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I'm looking through his, his history here. He does some pretty damn good movies. Maybe Troy wasn't great. <laughs> yeah, but uh, his place in that was that, you know, that was a movie that was trying to be, it was like, oh, we're going to get all of these yeah, actors together and we're going to do this classic epic. That was, I don't blame him for being caught in that. And it wasn't yeah. a terrible movie. No, I mean, I'm just going to run down what he's done recently. So he's in The Big Short, which is coming out this holiday season. You could check that out. It's about the housing crisis. Uh, Fury, which I haven't seen, but I need to see that movie. See see him in another World War II flick. 12 Years a Slave. World War Z wasn't great. 
killing them softly, uh, money ball, <laughs> you know, like curious case of Benjamin Button. Also, it came out the year before this. Like that was a critically acclaimed movie. Pretty damn good. Burn after reading. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't do like, he doesn't have a bad track record. He's got a similar track record to like Leonardo DiCaprio. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is like hot on his heels. I think they both came from kind of the same place and they're both going the same place, which is cool. Well, maybe they're a little bit different because Leo is chasing Oscars and I don't think Brad Pitt is chasing Oscars as, as fervently as, as Leo DiCaprio. I mean, every year Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio is nominated for an Academy Award. That's fair. Uh, anyway, but he does he does kill it, and also let's not forget about Christoph Waltz here. Christoph Waltz, this was like his introduction. <laughs> like nobody knew who Christoph Waltz was before this movie came out, and he just like destroyed everything. And he won the best. He won an Academy Award. He basically flew out of nowhere, and was amazing. Like uh, I I I just love Christoph Waltz. You and I talked about Spectre, and I know that some people you know. Uh, thought that Christoph Waltz wasn't very good, Inspector. I thought he was. I thought he was the best part of Spectre, man. I could listen to this guy read the phone book. I love. Christoph well, and the reality Waltz. is, Inspector. He's trying to be the same villain. He's trying to be the hyper intelligent, mm-hmm. step ahead with a sense of humor. Yep. Yeah. And he just didn't. I just don't think he had the supporting material to. I, d- to I just stick think he it. didn't have the humor. You think what? You no, know? and he, I didn't think he had the humor, and I don't. And I also didn't think that he had. Uh, that he was very foreboding. Um, in this movie, he is terrifying because he is way smarter than everybody else. <laughs> the thing that it reminded me of was Jackie Brown. You know, in Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown is a step ahead of everybody else in the entire movie. And that's awesome because she's our hero. So you can just follow her and you can kind of trust that she's going to be, she's going to have the advantage in every situation. But then when you flip that on its head and you make the smartest guy in the room the villain... All of a sudden, it becomes a lot scarier because you know that this guy's ready to outsmart anybody around. And it's um, a Quentin Tarantino movie, so you don't – the villain could win. It's mm-hmm. totally likely. That's – you know, yeah, looking at – I don't know about that. The villain does. The villain never wins in Tarantino movies. Well, that's because nobody wins at the end of some no, – no, They're all revenge stories, and there's always that moment of vengeance and redemption. I mean, Beatrix wins – uh, Jackie Brown definitely wins. Um, on, on I guess on the major scale, but if you look at yeah. like the the tavern fight in this one, yeah, Vaughn, that's a lose lose for every. On Michael Fassbender, a guy who is now another guy that's yeah. I don't know whether or not you'd say he's chasing Oscars, but he's an amazing yeah, actor, and he's in the movie for you know that thirty forty five minutes <laughs> in the middle, yeah, in and out dead. <laughs> In and out, yeah, absolutely, man. Like this movie has so much. I I, I made a little note here because I love the scene with Mike Myers, <laughs> Mike Myers playing the British, you know, uh, the British intelligence officer was so interesting. Man, um, great with a costume. <laughs> it was basically him, though. If you look at these two guys, like it was Mike Myers on his way out and Michael Fassbender on his way in. That's right. <laughs> it was these two ships passing in the night <laughs> like, in this single. I think Mike Myers' ship was a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I mean, Austin Powers was pretty big. Yeah, but I, I think the Love Group came out after Inglorious Bastards. Really? Yeah. Oh shit! I'm fairly certain. I'm out of time. Inglorious Bastards. I have. It is single handedly the the. 
Tarantino movie I have seen the most. Despite Kill Bill being my favorite, and Glorious Bastards I can sit down at any time and watch. Kill Bill I need some time in between viewing. Wow, you are correct, by the way. Love Guru came out in 2008. Nailed it! Yeah. But let's not forget, he basically doesn't have to do any movies ever again because he made like 19 Shrek movies and they all made five of them. That's interesting, though, because while I gave this movie high praise and you heard my high praise back in 2009, I think this was only my second viewing of it. Really? Maybe my third. But I haven't seen this movie in a long time. And golly, it was an amazing return to watch this movie. And like I said, just just putting in context of all Quentin Tarantino's movies, coming out of Death Proof and making this film, like this is a stake in the ground for Tarantino. And I do think that it kind of reveals three phases to his career. Like, I feel like there was the early phase, which consists of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And this is the L.A. crime story phase of his career. And Jackie Brown... I think it maybe straddles these two phases because there's also the second phase of his career, which I think is his B-movie phase of his career, where he's going to pay homage to all of the grindhouse cinema that he loved as a child. And I feel like Jackie Brown kind of bridges the L.A. crime story and the B-movie and that group. But this one definitely is a turn for Tarantino into historical fiction because he does this movie, then he does Django Unchained, then he does The Hateful Eight. And I think one of the reasons why he's going into history is because all of his divisive dialogue that made me really uncomfortable in Reservoir Dogs, uh, it plays fine in his, in a historical context because everybody was fucking racist back in 1940 <laughs> or in 1860 You're saying it's a smokescreen? <laughs> it is. I think it is because I think he got a little tired of people being like, hey, man, why are you using all this divisive language? He's like, well, I'll set the movie in 1940 and then it'll all just be normal. <laughs> like it's just, I think it's this weird thing where people are not comfortable with it here because people don't talk like that in 2015. Yes, they do. But uh <laughs> but then <laughs> but it's actually he's trying to extract it and put it in a historical context and then it's a little more comfortable for people when they're like, "Well, look at all those yahoos back in the past. They didn't do all this stuff." Um I do think that it that it does, you know, that's something I wrote down. I think it fits the time period a little easier. And also the violence it's the middle of fucking World War II, man. There's going to be violence. You know, Saving Private Riot proved that you could put violence in films. Um, so, I, like I said, I think, it's, I think it's kind of interesting that, I, that he takes his turn for historical fiction. Um, and in that, I love that he puts Hitler in this movie as a character. He, he, <laughs> I love that he kills Hitler in this movie. I wish mm-hmm. I, had, I had it spoiled before I went to the movie. On the forums, uh, Luke pointed out that he managed to watch this movie spoiler free and he didn't see the ending coming. And I was <laughs> so jealous. I yeah. wish that I didn't know. Cause otherwise I would have assumed Hitler would live. Right. But it's how many world war two movies are there where <laughs> they kill famous people in the past that live? Well, I mean, I, I do think that like you kind of hit it on the head when you were talking about, it's almost a comic book movie moment because this is captain america punching hitler in the face you know (laughs) like in in the day in 1940 uh you know um hitler was caricaturized and thrown into comic books and thrown into popular cinema as like this you know overarching evil 
figure, and there was defeat at the hands of superheroes during that time frame. And, you know, screw it. It's it's, it's just really good how um, he can introduce Hitler as a character into this movie, and you're like, oh, okay, so we know how this is going to end, and then he just pulls the rug out under you at the end because because of the multiple uh, machine gun shots that, that demolish his skull. Oh, and then they go full... Indiana Jones and the the Ark <laughs> yeah, of the Covenant totally. with just like yeah. the fake body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a satisfying end. But I do want to talk to you about this because I I, I, w- I want to bring up another another person on the forums, um, and that's our good friend Davy Mack. He's in Tokyo. He's he's been very active on the direct forums. And we love him for that. But he, I feel like he had a really good take here. He said, I think it's really interesting how this movie shows the power of cinema. Of course, the film literally saves the day. But you also get the interesting moment when Shoshana, who rightfully loathes Frederick throughout the film, sees him writ large on the screen uh, in a propaganda film and has some sense of compassion slash empathy slash sympathy. Not really sure what that emotion is. This moment of hesitation on her part ends up getting her killed. I also think that Inglorious Bastards itself makes us feel a sense of compassion toward characters we would never never otherwise feel compassion for. Frederick Wilhelm, the guy who gets his head bashed in, when all characters are serving the Reich and yet they are so human that I can't help but feel something for them and the bastards are the ones who are caricatures. I did think that was interesting because I got that feeling of like, yes, these guys are wearing Nazi uniforms, but... You know, when the when the leader didn't give up the position of his troops, I was like, of course he wouldn't do that. Like, he's a military leader. He's not going to sacrifice all of his men uh, just to just to save himself because he knows that he's dead anyway. Um, but it's kind of interesting because it goes back to this idea. And, you know, Levi, you and I growing up late 90s, early 2000s, especially in the video game realm, Throw a Nazi, throw a swastika on a guy, and you're just ready to lay into him with machine gun fire, whether it's oh, Call and, of Duty. And nobody flinches an eye. Everybody's right, like, yeah, exactly. that's cool. That's fine. Yeah, that they were the, especially in video games, they were the stock villain for years and years. <laughs> like countless RTSs, uh, the Medal of Honor series. Wolfenstein. Um, I mean, go back Wolfenstein. to one of the first major first-person shooters. Mm-hmm. I think what and I, yeah, go for it. Um, now I'm trying to keep track of the thought. The uh-huh. what's odd is that you know that we feel sympathy for so many of the the Nazis in this, or they they try and build sympathy. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. taking the heroic actions, um, mm-hmm. and if the shoe were on the other foot, that's the kind of character that would be in a classic American like war movie. Yeah, but with it's. Funny with the way that Brad Pitt brands them, and he's always saying, mm-hmm. you know, you want to take that uniform off, and I can't right. abide that. The movie is consistently telling us, you know, for how much ever sympathy that they garner, like, don't forget that they are a Nazi. Yeah. And, and that's the interesting part about it too. And, and, and I don't want this at all. I just want to say this up front. I don't want it all to come across like I'm saying Nazis are fine uh, or anything that they did was fine. And uh, But at the same time, like a lot of Nazis were drafted into the army. A lot of them never touched a concentration camp. They just sat, you know, they were soldiers on a battlefield fighting a war. Uh, and, you know, allowing them to be human characters is 
interesting for us as viewers. Um, but at the same time, those swastikas carved into their foreheads is, you know, becomes a mark of the film, <laughs> both literally and figuratively. Uh, and, and our and our head Nazi guy, you know, he comes off at the very beginning. Like, we learned the emergence of Shoshana as a character, um, where she comes from and why, you know, she has to have this, this fear and hatred for Londa. Um, and, you know... Uh, like I said, it's it's a conflicting feeling because of, yeah, they're Nazis, fuck them, right? But at the same time, they're they're also just people um, on a battlefield uh, trying to win a war at the same time. So let's go to the bastards. Let's go to the bastards here. Um, the bastards are really interesting because <laughs> they're basically like. Uh, what's that movie with? They are basically the Expendables, right? <laughs> no mission. <laughs> like they too are small. caricatures. Yeah, and then they're caricatures. But it's it's this interesting callback to like a time when, uh, especially in the late '90s, when you had like these big action stars, and it didn't really matter what they did as long as they were badasses. Yeah, um, you overlook the the lack of humanity in like. Mm-hmm. Think about Ar- uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Commando and just how many people he murders in a quest to get his daughter back. And all the people he murders are bad people <laughs> as far as far as we know. Right. As far as we know. But it's like it's the contractors on the Death Star conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like how many how many you know guys were just on there as military as, what about the janitors on the Death Star? Like they all get screwed too, you know. It's a collateral of war. Yeah, but that's the 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 thing that kept coming back to me was that uh, was that line from Full Metal Jacket: "War is hell, ain't it?" And it basically that's what this movie is. Like war is hell. All the stuff with the soldiers. It's like, hey, we're put here to do a job. Our job is to kill people. We're doing it. This is what we're here to do. Um, that was that was really interesting. What were some of your favorite lines in this movie, Levi? Oh. Did you have any favorite lines? Um, aside from everything that was uh, everything that was fake Italian with the mm-hmm. hand motion, the hand motion was really the most Italian <laughs> part of <laughs> Aldo Rain's uh, spy game. Yeah. Um, the the entire bit about the fingers in the tavern. And the uh-huh. Zwei glasses versus Zwei glasses uh-huh. always blows my mind because you, those are the kind of things that you don't think about. You know, you just right. have, you have just, you hold up three fingers. Who knew that using a different combination of fingers is a thing? Um, yeah. And so it's call outs like that. I'm trying to recall. There's one that, oh, my, probably the one that I quote the most. Mm-hmm. Is when they've got the you know the Nazi commander and they want him to point out the position and he says no and uh, Brad Pitt is just Donnie, we got a Nazi out here who wants to die for his country. Oblige him, like just every time he just leans into that accent yeah. and he nails it. I don't know if that's anything like a Appalachian accent, but I'll buy it. <laughs> I don't the know either. He delivers it. 
the accent part is great. I mean, I love the accent part. I love how that adds so much tension to that. Like that scene in the tavern just escalates up and up and up and up until it reaches its fateful and exciting conclusion. But um, that accent part was really interesting to me. And I guess I kind of wish I could ask Dennis Kleinbeck this, uh, our German compatriot who uh, was on the show last week. How different are the accents from in different regions? Because Germany's not that big. Like, <laughs> there's not that big of a difference, say, from even like a Northern California accent to a Southern California accent. Granted, California has only been settled for the last 150 years, so maybe there's some differences. Um, but I, I, I'm a little worried. I'm a little, you know, curious about how how the accents actually do span out across Germany. But regardless, you're right, man. That conversation is so good. And, yeah, I, I find myself trying to weigh this movie with Pulp Fiction. Because um, Pulp Fiction is so good. Like, it is a little bit of a masterpiece. And what it did for cinema in the 90s is so huge. And it's really impressive because it's Tarantino's second movie. But I have a hard time... Saying that Pulp Fiction is better than Inglorious Bastards. Granted, I also have a hard time saying Inglorious Bastards is better than Pulp Fiction. It's an internal conflict. But what do you think, Levi? What is 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 this movie better? Is is first of all, is is Pulp Fiction your favorite Tarantino movie? No, or, Kill Kill Bill is my number one. Pulp Fiction's number ooh. two. Inglorious Bastards would be number three. If I were wow. to rank them, wowzer those top three. But I think the conflict that that you have and as far mm-hmm. as I see it, is that Pulp Fiction was out of the blue. I think yeah. the the mechanics that he used in making his in making Pulp Fiction were ahead of their time, probably by like ten years easily, because mm-hmm. nobody's really, I think, effectively recreated the effect since. Yeah. Whereas Inglorious Bastards is. A fantastic film. Yeah. I don't know that it brought anything new hmm. in a sense. I, I'm trying to figure out how to how to state that. Because it, it's – I think it's just like such a – you know, he just – he nails the dialogue. He nails the pacing. The editing's fantastic. He still gets his little moments in. Like the Hugo Stieglitz introduction uh-huh. is – I always laugh because it goes right into the riff and it's got the, you know, the old font comes up <laughs> and then they good. do a quick montage to him with Samuel yeah. Jackson speaking over it. And then like the little army march as they basically, you know, invite him up to the big leagues, which is, you know, such an American expression. <laughs> it is. And they have the baseball player, Donovitz as well. Yeah. On their squad. Yeah. The baseball bat, the, the perfect American weapon. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, he has those moments, but I don't think there's an overarching element that is new. I think it's just Hmm. immaculate. One of the things that I really like about this movie from a World War II perspective is that it does show German, American, French, and English sides. And specifically, Vichy France. Like, occupied France is very interesting to me. Um, throughout World War II, it's a country that is, you know, has a proud tradition. is obviously a very proud country today. Um, 
but was completely taken over by the Germans. Like, what was that like? What 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 was that about? Um, and I love that French perspective there. I also, you know, going back to the language thing, I do think that this movie did something for language that I really like, um, especially in war, because uh, if you're talking war in Europe, language is a big deal. Um, and obviously people are multilingual and more, more multilingual in Europe than they are here in the United States. But I love being able to play off of English or off of different languages um, in a, in a narrative context. So I do think that's something new that it kind of brings to the table. Um, just to give you a heads up for anybody out there who wants to see other movies that kind of play off this language, um, language thing, there's this 2001 movie called No Man's Land uh, that is set during the Bosnian War, and it's another movie that I really like because everybody in the movie speaks the language that they're supposed to speak, which is really good. Uh, another and uh, and Rennie on the forums he brought it up as well. Um, he says usually if there is say a bunch of German characters are going to speak English amongst themselves with an atrocious German accent, which you heard at the beginning of this podcast, uh, this can absolutely <laughs> ruin a film for me. Side note: same for TV shows and Narcos is the only one I can think of that features an extraordinary amount of foreign dialogue. Narcos also on Netflix. You can check that out. They do speak Spanish a hell of a whole lot in that movie. The alternative is Valkyrie, where they don't even try to do <laughs> fake German accents. <laughs> you know, I think there's some nobility in that. Uh, it's just saying, fuck it, man. <laughs> like, we're not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna, it's going to be ridiculous nonetheless. It's not as bad, though. As, like, Have you seen this trailer for, is it Gods of Egypt? Yes. The most whitewashed, mm-hmm. Middle Eastern-based movie in the last probably five years. <laughs> that looks It looks miserable yep. um, to it boot. Looks, it looks pretty, uh, I don't know, man. If, if I had an afternoon to waste, I might watch that movie. I feel like but somebody saw and a Tarsim about... Singh movie and was like, I can do that, and they can't. <laughs> well, plus like 300. I mean, they put freaking Gerard Butler in it. <laughs> Like, yeah, but that's about the the Greeks and the Spartans. Mm-hmm. Those are white I people, not Egyptians. I understand. I totally get it. I I completely <laughs> understand. Um, Sorry, let's yeah. go back to language. Oh, it's yeah, so good so in this movie. It is, man, and it, it adds so much to that scene. I just really like it. Um, some other things that I like in this movie, if we're going to go back to lines, there are three lines that I just loved. Uh, one of them is when Michael Fassbender asks, asks the German guy who is defected or the, yeah, he is German, who's defected to the Inglorious Bastards when he's sharpening his knife before they go in the tavern. <laughs> he's like, you know, if things go down, stay calm. And he, and he goes, I don't look calm to you, <laughs> which is like <laughs> such a good badass line. <laughs> like he's just sitting there sharpening his blade and he's like, I don't look calm to you. Well, um, then he goes over to Brad Pitt and goes, he's not very loquacious. <laughs> is that what you want? <laughs> Somebody who's loquacious? <laughs> so good. And then also in that scene, Brad Pitt's line, well, you don't have to be Stonewall Jackson to know you don't want to fight in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Pitt fucking kills it in this movie, man. Right? And it's... Yeah. The character is just written... Like, the dialogue just seems Mm -hmm. like the kind of guy who would be ruthless at his job. He didn't need a college education. He's just gifted in the art of killing people. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Like he is, he's really good at what he does, and what he does is inspire murderers to murder the hell out of out of Nazis. I want my scalps. Go for it. <laughs> uh, another thing that I love, <laughs> another line that I absolutely love, uh, was when they had I I don't remember her name, but the actress uh, was it Von Hammerstein? Yes. Um, no, Von she, Hammersmark. Van, Von Hammersmark. She has she's shot through the leg, and uh, she's in the vet's office, and they come up with their new plan that they're all going to be Italian cameramen. <laughs> and she goes, "That sounds pretty good." And Brad Pitt goes, "Sounds like shit." But what, what else are we gonna do? Go home. <laughs> well, that's so good. Can we talk for a second about the fact that everybody goes into this final mission basically on a suicide mission? Mm-hmm. Like. Shoshana yeah. doesn't really plan on living through it, as far as I can tell. I assume does Marcel get shot? I'm trying to remember now. I feel like we see him get shot at some point in all the Who, madness. Marcel? Yeah, um, he's a projectionist. Yeah, well, I, I think he just burns up. Either that, or there was a uh, maybe an exit door behind the cinema. Maybe I just don't know, yeah. like because. You know, he seals the door. It's supposed to burn really fast, and he's standing right yeah, there. Yeah, he's standing right next to it. They basically call it a bomb. Brad Pitt um, and uh, Omar Doom and uh, Eli Roth all have bombs strapped to their legs and what appears mm-hmm. to be no plan other than to blow the place up. Well, the weird thing is, like, Brad Pitt took off his dynamite. Like, I thought that the other two guys would take off their dynamite and plant it somewhere. But no, they were like, yeah, they were full on suicide mission, because they have it still around their legs when they go off. They do like the close up of their legs when it blows up. So yeah, it's uh, it was just it was something I noticed. I was like, wow, they really intended on. Yeah, well, dude, they're gonna go fucking the final kill Hitler. Mile. That's their job. They're gonna go end the war. Like, you know, they're gonna go down as heroes. It'll be interesting. Well, Bj Novak lives so. <laughs> I kept on waiting for BJ Novak to knowingly look at the camera like, in the office. <laughs> break the fourth wall. Yeah, not not to mention not only do we have BJ Novak from the uh from the office, but we also have uh I don't I don't have his name in front of me, but the dude from Freaks and Geeks. Is it Sam Levine? Sam Levine from Freaks and Geeks, man. I only know him from Doug Love's movies, if that's the same Sam Levine. Huh. It might be, but yeah. If it is, that guy is really good at movie trivia. (laughs) Well, you should fucking watch Freaks and Geeks because he's great in that as well. (laughs) Um, So I I thought that was... And then, of course, Eli Roth, who's uh, QT's good buddy. And also, uh, for those who don't know, the director of Hostel. He's the guy who plays uh, Donnie Donowitz, I believe, is his name in this movie. Was it you Um, I was talking to who we were talking about? Quentin Tarantino regretting his friendship with Eli Roth at this point? No. I, I, you were talking to me about that. Let's talk with somebody about just Eli What's Roth the, uh, not being particularly great with his movies. Well, you know, he's... Well, he recently released that, what is it, Green Inferno? Is that what it's called? Or was that... Yeah, I think so. Like, you know, he's doing his torture porn. That's what he does. That's all he does, though. Yep. 
That's what, he does that and he's in Quentin Tarantino movies. That's something that makes you wonder. Like, mm-hmm. you do one, okay, that's that's cool. Like, good job, <laughs> you did something different. Now you did two. Oh, all right, well, now you've mastered it. Oh, you're uh-huh. doing three, huh? Are you really into this? You can be Well, honest. you know, if you're if Eli Roth is going to go out to investors and he's going to say, all right, guys, well, I got a great romantic comedy that I'm trying to make. <laughs> and they're going to be like, do you have any more of those torture porn movies? <laughs> I'll give you a hundred grand for that. What is this investor? I thought we were done with accents. He's a tycoon. (laughs) 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 Yes. Uh, Anyway, the other thing that I love, let's, let's talk about Christoph Waltz here for a moment. Oh my God. Because also destroys it. But the thing that I love about Christoph Waltz in this movie is that he plays with his food before he eats it. Like, he knows he's the smartest fucking guy in the room. He knows that he knows more than anybody else. So, like, the the scene that really stood out for me here is when he sees uh, Von Hammersmark at the, um, at the premiere. He knows that she was in the tavern. He knows that she escaped because of her autograph that was left there. Uh, so he knows that she's with the, bla- the bastards and... He probably also knows what uh, what Aldo looks like, so, uh, so he's just gonna go down and he's gonna have this weird conversation and he's going to make them repeat Itali- their Italian names four or five times just to humiliate them, knowing full well that uh, exactly who they are and what their plot is and what they're going to be doing, and he's five steps ahead of everybody in that case. Well, um, he comments on it too. I don't remember what triggers him, what upsets him about Aldo Rain, but he's like, if that's the case, I don't think we're operating at the level of mutual respect that I thought we were. Because <laughs> he's expecting a, an opponent yeah. as smart as him. Well, he found a guy that is there to kill Nazis. That's his job. Like, um, <laughs> I love the big Sherlock Holmes pipe. That that Lotta uses at the beginning of the movie because he is he's a detective he's there to outsmart and outthink and then he lets other people do the brute force whereas Aldo is a fucking bullet train he's just gonna <laughs> go through and destroy as many people as he can and preserve his own men as best he can in the process he is a warrior he's not a, he's not a uh, well he's a tactician but he's not he's not the, he's not a detective here um. So yeah, I I completely agree, man. Christoph Waltz in this movie, Ugh, so good. Have we? It made seen me really excited. Sorry, go. Tarantino write any characters quite like this yet? Like if we look back through all, I'm just trying to flip through my head mentally because I just thought of this like Christoph Waltz's character. Yeah, I don't know if there's anybody that plays that clever in any of the other. Like he's had ruthless characters. Like Bill was. Mm-hmm cunning and cruel even though we didn't see it and And, manipulative but he didn't have the the true you know up in his own ego about his intelligence yeah that's the thing he's so egotistical that's what really draws me here is that um that this christoph waltz character reminds me of a combination of between Jackie Brown and Samuel Jackson's character in Jackie Brown. What was his name? Uh, Ordell. So 
because like Jackie Brown has a smart, like she's ahead. She's a step ahead of everybody. She knows what's going on. She has a plan. She's following it through. But then, it, but then Ordell is basically uh, the egotistical asshole that can't get aside from his own uh, hubris. And the those two things combined uh, combine themselves into this character of of Lada in in Inglorious Bastards. I think that he's a combo of those two. But yeah, he also go, he also goes back to a guy like the Wolf, right? In Pulp Fiction, like that's well, a character think, that go, sorry walks into a room and and he knows exactly what to do at all times. I think that's in some ways Aldo Rain is. Harvey Keitel and uh, I'm trying to think who's the crazy one in Reservoir Dogs. They gave him six different Vega. Yeah, Um, because he has that sort of uh, force of nature aspect to him without the the uh, love of cruelty that he had. (laughs) But you knew that whatever he was going to do was not going to be good for whoever was in his way. (laughs) Totally, and and. That butts itself right up on that final scene between Christoph Waltz and Brad Pitt in this movie. Because Brad Pitt isn't going to come at you level-headed on a um, on a level playing field. He's not going to say, okay, we can make a deal here. We'll each be able to give a little give and take. And, and we'll both be fine. No, he's a fucking warrior. He's got one job. His job is killing Nazis. That's what he's here to do. He's not here to make deals with Nazis. Like, <laughs> he's he's vilified these guys in his own mind to the point where he, he's not going to be able to make a deal with Christoph Waltz. He wants to teach him a lesson at the same time. Sure, he'll deliver him alive, but he's going to be living in Nantucket with, uh, with, a, with a brand new uh, brand on his forehead. Well, and that's the thing. He acknowledges I, that's a good deal. Uh-huh. I he like he understands it, but that's still just not not who he is, not how he works. <laughs> and I love well, that he, honestly, he's, you'll be shot. I'll be chewed out. I've been chewed out before. I've been chewed out before. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about this movie is that Quentin Tarantino he dangles that he dangles that out in front of you, and he says, "You know what, guys? We're gonna make a nice deal here. Everybody's gonna get off scot free, and uh, and the war will be over." And you know what? It doesn't sit well with you as a viewer. Like you don't want to see Christoph Walt gets off get off scot free in this. Like we know what he's done. We know the terror that he has enacted throughout uh, France and elsewhere. We know that he's the Jew hunter. We want to see him get his comeuppance, and that really is, I think, the ultimate revenge fantasy in this uh, in this movie. Of course, killing Hitler, great revenge fantasy. It's awesome, but it. But at the same time, I think it's much more satisfying to see the swastika carved in Christoph Waltz's forehead as a viewer because from the get-go, we know that this guy is a personification of pure evil, and we don't want to see him get off scot-free. It's something well, that, that – yeah. We've talked about that with Tarantino movies up to this point, that there is a instinctual justice that he really is into, and this is – one of the first where, like, actual ju- – like, when Ordell gets shot, it's not the right form of justice. It's not the American justice system, yeah. but it is justice. Yep. It's a certain kind of – it's primal justice. And this um, one, we get both. Hitler gets primal get justice and Christoph Waltz gets <laughs> – well, still not the American justice system, but 
Yeah. He has to live with I, his crimes. I don't know what you do in that case if you're Christoph Waltz. Like, do you... Like, how do you go... How do you go forward with You that? never leave your house. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could melt your forehead. That would be painful. Um, <laughs> Gross. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's some body modification people online who can... Um, who can offer some advice? Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he could do like totally a lot right of there. actual Nazi war criminals and retreat to Ecuador. Yeah, or Argentina to live out a life um, of luxury. <laughs> anyway, uh, but you're right, man. Like, I think we got to put this tool in the Tarantino toolbox as well. Is it vengeance? Like, vengeance is so strong in all of his movies. Every single one of his movies is about vengeance in some way and as a viewer it keeps you really excited because it gives you an idea of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are because if you just go off what they do and the things that you see them do (laughs) it's hard to differentiate sometimes who the good guys are and who the bad guys are um so i I think we got to put that in the toolbox is that we have first of all the the rule the tarantino rule that bad people are interesting because they are yeah Bad people are interesting to watch. And then the second rule is if you put a revenge story inside this group of bad people, now you have now the audience has somebody to root for and they have a side to pick. Um, and that's a great what, technique. I mean, this one, it does. It just foc- it focuses on the bad guys as much as it does the good mm-hmm. guys. And so I think, you're, I think you're absolutely correct that vengeance wrapped inside a folk. I think you've got it. I think we've got... Ninety percent of his secret sauce. <laughs> got to have a bunch of assholes, and then you got to put a revenge story in the middle of it, and then it'll be good. This also yeah, sounds like this... Hateful Eight, <laughs> <laughs> based on the trailers. Bunch of yeah, really man. bad people. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I have an underlined here in my notes. Like Brad Pitt is a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. I, like I said, of course, he's killing Nazis. That's that's great. And we've watched – that's been the, the story of American cinema for, you know, basically ever since World War II is that, you know, you root for the American hero. But it's like, you know, the first thing that we see the Inglorious Bastards do is slicing the scalp off of a German soldier. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah, and they really take their time to show that just so mm-hmm. you – in case you thought the scalps were metaphorical, you were mistaken. <laughs> I was a little bummed, too, that they didn't put FDR in this movie. Because they got Churchill and they got Hitler. Uh, you know, and they didn't have any Stal- They didn't have any Russians, so Stalin can't be in it. But I would love to see, I would have loved to see a scene with <laughs> with FDR or something. Maybe just a newsreel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I joined maybe. you on that little segue. I just I love FDR. He's my fave. Uh, <laughs> final thing, of course, I want to talk about cinema here because cinema is the saving grace of this movie. Like film is a weapon, literally, in this movie. But I also love like the propaganda piece and what they do with the character, uh, uh, with the actor. Um, and I'll I'll find his name here in a moment, but. Uh, but yeah, the 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 Frederick Zoller, the uh uh the sniper, the famous German sniper 
Um, I, it's just really interesting to me, like what they did with Goebbels in this movie and what they did with just cinema in general as a weaponized force. Because it's not only being used as a weapon by the uh, by the by the by the saboteurs here, but it's also being used as a weapon, quite literally, as for propaganda purposes by the Germans, which I thought was cool. Well, they you know they referenced uh, York. I'm trying to look up the title of the actual movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's a classic one. What the heck was it called? It's like Sergeant York, I think. Let's try Sergeant York. Yes. Have you seen that? No. What is it? It's about a guy, he's, uh, I think he's also from Appalachia, um, uh-huh. and he's just like a real crack shot um, mm-hmm. growing up, and he goes to World War One, and he's a pacifist, but he ends up killing a lot of Germans. I don't remember yeah. the full extent of it, I just remember it being like, it had, it was Gary Cooper, um, and yeah. it was, it's a famous one, I think it showed up on the 100 AFI oh. films, that's why I saw it, but... I think there were similarities between that and the Frederick Zoller film where, especially at the time, because Sergeant York was made in 1941. So same time period as uh, mm-hmm. this Frederick Zoller film. Yep. And it's just the glorification of massive casualties by one man. Uh-huh. And in the movie, you're watching it, and one, you see the struggle of Zoller with kind of reliving it. And I think Sergeant York is actually based on a real person. I could be wrong about that part. Um, but, you know, it's it's all propaganda. And we yep. kind of dress it up as entertainment. <laughs> and especially right. now, looking back, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, Sergeant York. It was a an old war movie that gets a lot of credit just for the time. But at the time, it was meant to get people to enlist, to go kick some ass. Right. Yeah. 1941 biographical film about the life of Alvin York, one of the most decorated American soldiers of World War One. Totally, man. Starring Gary Cooper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, it's basically the exact same story. And I do like, I mean, that's got to be a callback, right? That he's, oh, uh, absolutely. he's a Tennessee. He's a, he's a. Alvin York, a poor young Tennessee hillbilly, is an exceptional marksman, but a ne'er do well prone to drinking and fighting. <laughs> yuck, yuck, might be yuck. a little, yeah, it might be a little Aldo in this, in this movie. Um, yeah, I I have a hard time saying this that this movie isn't better than Pulp Fiction. I really fucking love this movie. I think it's really damn good. Uh, and I want to watch it again. Well, that's the thing is, I I don't know, I I acknowledge that Pulp Fiction is, I think, the better movie, and maybe it's because it's the more interesting movie, maybe it's because it's a movie ahead of its time, mm-hmm. but I'll agree, like, I can go back and watch this one repeatedly without fail. I mean, I don't, I didn't, I, I thought about putting a timer on it, but I was just too goddamn enthralled by the scene, <laughs> but that ta- tavern scene probably lasts 40 minutes. Easily. Like, I mean, it's that is like <laughs> the the second act. Yeah, they, they just throw these guys in a basement for forty minutes, and you are fucking enthralled the entire time because you know you don't want to fight in a basement. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole time it's, it's so, leading up it's to a so, fight in the basement. It's just, it's just like you have to almost applaud the craftsmanship that Tarantino puts in this movie, and it's the type of craftsmanship that you need ten years to do. I mean. One of my favorite movies of all time, of course, is Back to the Future. That movie took 10 years to write. 
And it's a fucking perfect movie. Like, every scene follows those rules. Character development or moving the plot forward. Character development or moving the plot forward. Like, it just does it so interestingly. Um, and the script is so fucking airtight that it can break other rules. Like, it'll, it'll have a bunch of scientific mumbo-jumbo dialogue for 30 minutes in the first half hour of the movie. And, and you're totally okay with it. And this is the same type of deal. Like Tarantino had been writing this movie for 10 years. I just feel like he was able to do so many cool things. Like not only do you uh, – do you do they have the scene where they're scoping out the tavern and they're talking about how bad it is, but he punctuates it with that awesome line. You don't have to be Stonewall Jackson to know you don't want to fight in a basement. And then that tension is there. It's there the entire time. When you walk into the tavern and you see the, all the drunk Nazi privates sitting around the table – uh, you're like, holy shit, this is this is bad immediately. <laughs> well, and for all of that tension that's built up, it ends with uh, Fassbender just giving his like, well, there's mm-hmm. only one thing left to do. He's he's calm yep. and collected. And then Hugo Stieglitz, say off either, say they are nuts. And then just bullets <laughs> everywhere. Like it's just, it's musical, you know? He just, the yep. rise and fall. Practical music in that scene, by the way, very oh, yeah. well done. The record player, yep. which just keeps going and skipping at the end, mm-hmm. and you don't even notice it, but it's like the drum, yeah. like it feels like the jazz drumming in uh, Birdman. Like it just puts you on mm-hmm. edge without mm-hmm. having to do much. Just something about that background noise where you're like, "What the hell is that?" Yeah, yeah, it's good, man. It's and and it punctuates itself at the moment where you realize that the that the German officer is in there. Uh, two. Oh God! That's he like, speaks up, and you're just like, oh, oh fuck. Well, that whole time I was like, oh, God, Fassbender should have kept his goddamn mouth shut, <laughs> and and one of the other guys should have scolded. If one of the other guys would have scolded them, no problem. Yeah. Like, uh, and then the other part about it is, why didn't they just leave? Like, was it really that suspicious to just leave? <laughs> like, you could have said, oh yeah, I'm meeting my friends here. Here they are. Okay, we're leaving now. Bye. (laughs) Would not have been as interesting a movie. You walk downstairs. You see that it's full of Nazis. You leave. Peace out, guys. Uh, No, but it's good. I mean, that that whole scene is just great. The tension is so good. And then there's the end when, when, you know, Max's dad, Maximilian's father, is pleading with Aldo at the end, and he's got the machine gun trained on him. He's like, you know, I just had a son, and blah, blah, blah. It reminded me a lot of the scene at the end of Kill Bill, uh, Volume 2, when the assassin corners Beatrix in the hotel room, and she's like, hey, I just took a pregnancy test. I'm going to be a mother. I don't want to kill you. Uh, And then the assassin leaves after that in Kill Bill Volume 2. But in Inglorious Bastards, that's not what's going to happen. And when he gets shot in the chest... So reminiscent of Reservoir Dogs when Mr. Orange <laughs> shoots Mr. Blonde in the chest. Just out of nowhere, boom, 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 boom. Then we go to the shot of the, of, of her with the gun. Um, so that's the thing. Like That's what I love about this movie is like it, it, it calls back to so many of Tarantino's films. And you're just like, oh, that's where he learned how to do that. And then he's implying it in this context and he does an even better job of it. There's just so many awesome callbacks that you can watch on the screen and be like, okay, this is where he's plucking all of these characters from. It's just really impressive to me. I really hope that whatever director is after this one, like, Mm -hmm. I just don't know that they, that, that trajectory will be as beautiful as Tarantino. Like he's so good at carrying, you know, he started 
kind of dancing to his own tune, and he has just never stopped. <laughs> well, I, I think that is going to be a major criteria for our next director is that we have to find somebody who does that. Um, and I think that there are definitely directors out there who have that mark. And I think that if you watch any of those directors in sequence, you're going to find things that are beautiful in that way. Michael um, Bay. Oh, de- Michael Bay is definite. But more explosions. Definitely doing, yeah, more explosions. We'll just the explosions count the explosions. Got bigger <laughs> and bigger. They were beautiful. Instead they were of talking about fiery. characters, we'll talk about, oh man, the explosions <laughs> in this film. Can we just talk about those in order? Yeah, in order. Explosion <laughs> cam. All right. Well, uh, that's all I have to say about the Glorious Bastards. Do you have anything else to say? No, just, I really do just want to sit down and watch it again. So. It's good. Oh. Also, I'm just wondering, like, how are they going to close up the wound on Christoph Waltz's forehead? Because that thing's going to bleed for a while. Like, you, you know, got a it, lot. It's of kind of shallow skin there, though, right? So I feel like you might bleed a lot, but you're not hitting like an artery, depending on how deep he's That's going. That's true. That's true. But it's pretty deep, man. Yeah, he like, really gets in deep, there. <laughs> he needs some stitches. He's going to need some stitches. Uh, <laughs> also, want to tell the listeners, so listeners. So we kind of screwed up here because we tried to make this podcast so that we could end on Hateful Eight on Christmas. It's being released on on Christmas. And that plan was ironclad until we learned that it's actually a limited release on Christmas. Uh, and though, and even though Levi and I do live near uh, major cities. Major. Top ten cities. Yeah, major top. Well, you could say I, I live in Seattle uh, and Levi lives near Denver. So... These are these are big towns. They're big towns, um, but uh, but they're uh, hateful. Eight is not playing on Christmas in either of those cities. Apparently, so, we don't have seventy millimeter projectors here. Well, well, we ha- we do. We have a beautiful theater here in downtown Seattle called Cinerama, which is an amazing place to watch movies. It's owned by Paul Allen, who uh, co-founded Microsoft and owns the Seattle Seahawks. Local hero. Uh, but unfortunately, there's this little movie named Star Wars that's going to be playing there, and it's a single screen. So that's the only place that does 70 millimeter projection um, here in Seatown. Uh, so like I said, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to watch the movie on Christmas. So what that means, though, is that what we're going to do is we are going to cover, during the two weeks uh, little break that we're going to have between uh, Django Unchained and Hateful Eight. We're going to cover the two movies that Quentin Tarantino wrote but did not direct. So we will be covering True Romance and we'll be covering From Dusk Till Dawn. And then that first or it's the second weekend there in January, we will conclude with The Hateful Eight, which is in the wide release. So I think most people are probably in that same boat, unless they're in San Francisco, because for some reason it's showing on like nine screens in San Francisco. <laughs> or in Austin. You can go see it at the yeah. Alamo Draft House, you lucky bastards. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's the heads up, guys. So we're going to be doing Django next week, then we'll do True Romance, then we'll do From Dust Till Dawn, and then we'll cap it off. Cap off our Tarantino journey with the Hateful Eight. So stay tuned for that. Please check out the forums, guys. Forums.baldmove.com. And send us an email. Directpodcast at gmail.com. Give us your feedback. We'll put it on the show. And until next week, I'm Eric. Gorlami. (laughs) Cut. (laughs) Sounded funnier in my head when I thought about it.